This morning we turn in God's inspired word to the prophecy of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 13. Jeremiah 13. Thus saith the Lord unto me, Go and get thee a linen girdle, and put it upon thy loins, and put it not in water. So I got a girdle, according to the word of the Lord, and put it on my loins. And the word of the Lord came unto me the second time, saying, Take the girdle that thou hast got, which is upon thy loins, and arise, go to Euphrates, and hide it there in a hole of the rock. So I went and hid it by Euphrates, as the Lord commanded me. And it came to pass after many days that the Lord said unto me, Arise, go to Euphrates, and take the girdle from thence which I commanded thee to hide there. Then I went to Euphrates and digged, and took the girdle from the place where I had hid it. And behold, the girdle was marred, it was profitable for nothing. Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Thus saith the Lord, After this manner will I mar the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people, which refuse to hear my words, which walk in the imagination of their heart, and walk after other gods to serve them and to worship them, shall even be as this girdle, which is good for nothing. For as the girdle cleaveth to the loins of a man, so have I caused to cleave unto me the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah, saith the Lord, that they might be unto me for a people and for a name and for a praise and for a glory. But they would not hear. Therefore thou shalt speak unto them this word. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Every bottle shall be filled with wine, and they shall say unto thee, Do we not certainly know that every bottle shall be filled with wine? Then shalt thou say unto them, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will fill all the inhabitants of this land, even the kings that sit upon David's throne, and the priests and the prophets and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. And I will dash them one against another. Even the fathers and the sons together, saith the Lord, I will not pity, nor spare, nor have mercy, but destroy them. Hear ye, and give ear. Be not proud, for the Lord hath spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God, before he cause darkness, and before your feet stumble upon the dark mountains, and while ye look for light, he turn it into the shadow of death and make it gross darkness. But if he will not hear it, my soul shall weep in secret places for your pride, and mine eyes shall weep sore and run down with tears, because the Lord's flock is carried away captive. Say unto the king and to the queen, Humble yourselves, sit down, for your principalities shall come down, even the crown of your glory. The cities of the south shall be shut up, 
and none shall open them. Judah shall be carried away captive of all of it. Of it. it shall be wholly carried away captive. Lift up your eyes and behold them that come from the north. Where is the flock that was given thee, thy beautiful flock? What wilt thou say when he shall punish thee? For thou hast taught them to be captains, and as chief over thee, shall not sorrows take thee as a woman in travail? And if thou say in thine heart, Wherefore come these things upon me? For the greatness of thine iniquity are thy skirts discovered, and thy heels made bare. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? or the leopard his spots? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil. Therefore will I scatter them as the stubble that passeth away by the wind of the wilderness. This is thy lot, the portion of thy measures from me, saith the Lord, because thou hast forgotten me and trusted in falsehood, Therefore will I discover thy skirts upon thy face, that thy shame may appear. I have seen thine adulteries and thy neighings, the lewdness of thy whoredom, and thy abominations on the hills and the fields. Woe unto thee, O Jerusalem! Wilt not thou not be made clean? When shall it once be? In the light of that passage and others, I call your attention this morning to the instruction of Lord's Day 4 in our Heidelberg Catechism. Questions and answers 9 through 11. Doth not God then do injustice to man by requiring from him in his law that which he cannot perform? Not at all, for God made man capable of performing it. But man, by the instigation of the devil and his own willful disobedience, deprived himself and all his posterity of those divine gifts. Will God suffer such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? By no means but is terribly displeased with our original as well as actual sins and will punish them in his just judgment, temporally and eternally, as he hath declared, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Is not God then also merciful? God is indeed merciful, but also just. Therefore his justice requires that sin which is committed against the most high majesty of God be also punished with extreme, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord's Day 4 brings to conclusion this very brief but devastating section of the Catechism which exposes the greatness of our miseries. Today we're brought before the common attempt of the natural man to escape the justice of God. 
It's not unlike the person who has committed a crime seeking to cover up that criminal deed and escape being brought to justice. The sinner tries to escape God from God for the same reason. He knows that he is guilty, and guilt brings punishment. Of course, even if you don't want to call something sin, you know that it's wrong. Even if you refuse to acknowledge that you are a sinner, and therefore sinful, you bear the testimony of that reality in your heart and in your life. Ensnared with the effects of death, the wages of sin. And the fact is, as we read in Romans 2, every person has the work of the law written in his or her heart. Their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts, the meanwhile, accusing or else excusing one another. And yet that doesn't stop the sinner from trying to excuse himself, from trying to cover up and escape the just judgment of God. So in Lord's Day 4, we are brought before these excuses and compelled to consider God's justice in punishing sinners. And in doing so, it brings us before what Scripture reveals about God's perfect holiness and righteousness. That perfect holiness and righteousness comes to expression in his attitude over against sin and the sinner. So I call your attention this morning to God's justice in punishing sinners. As revealed in his righteousness, in his holy wrath, and in the execution of his justice. So first of all, we stand before the truth that God is the perfectly righteous God. He's the standard before whom all are judged, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Psalm 92, to mention one example, sets forth the antithesis, the sharp contrast between God's dealings with the wicked and with the righteous. Now, by the righteous, I trust you understand that the reference is to those who are righteous in Christ. In the promised Messiah in the Old Testament, that righteousness was by faith in the promised Messiah. But the psalmist, in considering God's dealings with the wicked over against the righteous, says this in verse 7 of Psalm 92, When the wicked spring as the grass, and when all the workers of iniquity do flourish, it is that they shall be destroyed forever. Verse 9, For lo, thine enemies, O Lord, for lo, thine enemies shall perish. All the workers of iniquity shall be scattered. 
And then follows the contrast in verses 12 through 15. The righteous shall flourish like the palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those that be planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bring forth fruit in old age. They shall be fat and flourishing to show that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Now we're jumping ahead here, but this also shows the absolute necessity of your life and mine being found in Christ by a true and living faith. When all the workers of iniquity do flourish, it is that they shall be destroyed forever. The righteousness of God demands that the unrighteous, those who work iniquity, receive the just reward of their unrighteousness and sin. God maintains his own righteousness. But this truth is challenged. Question and answer 9 of Lord's Day 4 sets forth that challenge this way. Does not God then do injustice to man by requiring from him in his law that which he cannot perform? The sinner's objection is this. God has demanded that I keep his law perfectly, completely, but I'm incapable. Certainly, God would not require of me something that I am incapable of performing. Remember, the law doesn't just speak to the outward act. Then I could attempt to keep it. But the demand of the law, as we have seen, is that we love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind, and that we love the neighbor as ourselves, as an expression of our love for God. So I'm called to be a lover of God. But you've said I've been capable. The Bible teaches I'm incapable, totally depraved. Moreover, I was born this way. My nature was never different from that of any other person, dead in sin. That's what we saw from Scripture last time. And seeing, therefore, that I have no control over my own nature, let alone over my own birth, I can't help it when I fail to fulfill the law. I'm not responsible then. And how would it be right for God to demand of me something that I cannot perform? And in answer to that objection, we are shown that Scripture unfolds the perfect righteousness of God. We must understand, first of all, that the Heidelberg Catechism is portraying these objections as a teaching method 
to lead us to a clearer understanding of the word of God and therefore of God himself. But it is doing so because these objections rise quite naturally from our own sinful hearts, which would attempt to elude and escape the consequences of our sinfulness. And you know that because you've done it repeatedly. And you've seen your fellow human beings do the same. That finger-pointing, that blame-shifting began immediately after the fall and has become deeply ingrained in the fallen human nature. But when we stand before these objections, and when we ourselves are inclined to raise these objections, immediately we must be told Put your hand over your mouth. God forbid that we should ever point the finger at him and attempt to shift blame to him. God forbid that we should ever accuse him of being unrighteous or anything less than perfect in who he is and what he has done. We who are creatures may never summon the Creator before our judgment seat. The moment we summon God before the judgment seat of our reason and our pretended justice, we've exalted ourselves above the living God and made an idol out of self. May God forbid that we do that. That's really a denial of God. We must always begin with His revelation, what He has revealed concerning Himself. And then we are told in Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity. Just and right is he. So that when we stand before these objections, or when such objections arise in our own sinful hearts, then we must immediately begin with this. Whether I see it or not, God is righteous in his judgment. No question about it. And the day is coming when he will make very clear his justice to all the world. But scripture exposes the fallacy involved in making such an objection against God. So when the objection is raised, does not God then do injustice to man by requiring from him in his law that which he cannot perform? The Catechism responds with a summary teaching of the Word of God. Not at all, we confess. For God made man capable of performing it, but man 
by the instigation of the devil and his own willful disobedience, deprived himself and all his posterity of those divine gifts. Years ago, I had a stranger come to the door. He saw the house was a parsonage, and he came to the door looking for help. He was distraught. He had received his paycheck and cashed it, but he had taken that money and lost every last penny gambling. His house payment was due. He had to go home to his wife to tell her what he had done. And the thing that struck me is he didn't he wasn't there asking for money. Most times strangers come to the parsonage door, they're looking for money. He simply wanted someone to talk to. But I mention this because this man knew that he was still responsible for making that house payment and for answering to his wife. He had that money from his paycheck in his hand. The fact that he had squandered it, lost it all, did not leave him with the excuse that would alleviate him from having to make his house payment. The catechism with this answer simply sets forth what that man clearly understood. God's law does not just drop out of the blue. His law, love me, was part of man's life from his very creation. God made man to stand in such a relationship to him that man did love him and was able to love him. God made man capable of performing that fundamental law of his existence. We saw last week how God created man good after his own image in true righteousness and holiness that he might rightly know God his creator heartily love him and live with him in eternal happiness to glorify and praise him. That's how God created man. Those are the gifts that God gave him. Moreover, God gave man every good thing to assist him in his service of God. The whole world was given to man. He reigned over all things in order that through all things he might serve his creator in the fellowship of his life and love. What did man do with those wonderful gifts that God had given him? What did he do with those spiritual gifts? What did man do with the gifts that God gave him in creation? He threw them all away. 
He became like that child so quickly distracted by some new thing that he throws aside that toy that he had just received as a gift minutes before. So the Catechism, in summarizing the account of Genesis chapter 3, reminds us that man, by the instigation of the devil and his own willful disobedience, deprived himself and all his posterity of those divine gifts. Satan came with something appealing, and man threw away what he had been given. This is how our canons of Dort describe it. In the third and fourth heads of doctrine, Article 1. Man was originally formed after the image of God. His understanding was adorned with a true and saving knowledge of his creator and of spiritual things. His heart and will were upright, all his affections pure, and the whole man was holy. But revolting from God by the instigation of the devil and abusing the freedom of his own will, he forfeited these excellent gifts and on the contrary entailed on himself blindness of mind horrible darkness, vanity, and perverseness of judgment became wicked, rebellious, and obdurate, hardened in heart and will, and impure in his affection. And that's where we are at today. That's tremendously humiliating, isn't it? And shall we now deny our responsibility to love God? Sorry, God, but I'm no longer responsible for loving thee and serving thee because I no longer have what's necessary to do that. In Jeremiah 13, we saw God's response to Israel's question in verse 22, Wherefore come these things upon me? And the response of the perfectly holy and righteous God is this, For the greatness of thine iniquity are thy skirts discovered and thy heels made bare. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil. Therefore will I scatter them as the stubble that passes away by the wind of the wilderness. This is thy lot, the portion of thy measures from me, saith the Lord, because thou hast forgotten me and trusted in falsehood, therefore will I discover thy skirts upon thy face, that thy shame may appear. Or shall we now say that God has to settle for less from us? 
I dare say that that's the thinking of the vast majority in the church world of our day. Many who call themselves Christians would insist that God must be satisfied when they are doing the best they can. All kinds of people deceive themselves into thinking that they're going to heaven because they've done their best. Nice people, giving people, kind, doing their best. God must be satisfied with that because after all, nobody's perfect. And so you find many who would base their salvation on their own works, doing the best they can. And you know something, people of God, even when we hear faithful preaching that consistently points us to Christ, this self-righteousness rises up within us. Yes, how terrible we are. So God must be satisfied with the best we can do. No, no. God cannot be satisfied. The perfectly holy and righteous God cannot be satisfied with you and me simply doing our best. He demands perfection. Our best is still defiled with sin. He demands love unceasing with all our heart and soul and mind. You see then that we can do nothing to obtain the righteousness, to satisfy that perfect righteousness of God? Do you see then how we need Jesus? Then follows the truth that God's justice in punishing sinners comes to expression in his holy and inescapable wrath. Question and answer 10. Will God suffer such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? By no means. But is terribly displeased with our original as well as actual sins and will punish them in his just judgment temporally and eternally as he hath declared, cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And that declaration is from God's holy word in Galatians 3 verse 10, which also establishes the teaching of Deuteronomy 27 verse 26. The idea of God being terribly displeased is a concept frightening to think about. The idea is the same as that found three times in the Old Testament when it speaks of God's hot 
displeasure. One occasion is that of Israel's rebellion at Mount Horeb when Moses returned from Sinai to find the people dancing around the golden calf that Aaron had made. And recounting that incident, Moses spoke of the terrifying pronouncement of God. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven and I will make of thee a nation mightier and greater than they. And upon seeing what Israel had done, Moses underwent a period of fasting and prayed that the Lord might not destroy the people of his inheritance. And Moses said, For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure wherewith the Lord was wroth against you to destroy you. But the Lord hearkened unto me at that time also. The Catechism speaks of that same hot displeasure of God toward our original as well as actual sin. The wrath of God is his response, the response of his holiness toward sin and the sinner. God is holy, perfectly pure. He is light in whom is no darkness at all. He seeks his own glory. He would have no one and nothing tarnish it. It is that holiness of God that compels the regenerated David and every Christian to direct his prayer unto him with awe, confessing with Psalm 5, verses 4 and 5, For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Sin is the very denial of God's holiness. The sinner tramples God's holiness underfoot. Fallen man does not seek God. Romans 8 verse 7 tells us the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. And what follows? The wrath of God burns. Except for the sinner being saved by divine grace, by faith in one who alone can satisfy God's justice, that wrath of God will burn the sinner into hell. That's the hot displeasure of God against sin. And in God's just judgment, he has declared that he will punish disobedience and rebellion temporally and eternally. As he said, cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law, to do them. In his holy wrath, 
God causes the sinner to know misery. He brings the sinner to death. That's the wages of sin. Those wages are the punishment of man's guilt. The holy God gives us to know how much we have offended him. The holy God gives us to know what it is to be consumed by his anger. We sang it earlier from Psalm 90, verses 9 through 11. For all our days are passed away in the wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. The days of our years are threescore years and ten. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow. For it is soon cut off and we fly away. For who knoweth the power of thine anger? Even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. Now the beauty of Psalm 90, of course, is that it arises from the lips of one who knows deliverance from the holy wrath of God, and therefore who cries out in repentance, longing to see the fulfillment of God's work of salvation, and pleading that he teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. But Lord's Day 4 would lead us to see our great need for a mediator, a Savior, because we can't save ourselves. Again, as we saw last week, we might like to separate ourselves from Adam. We might like to say, but that's him, not me. Yes, the blame shifting continues. And we foolishly attempt to claim how good we are. But Adam not only represented us legally, we are in him organically. And that's why the catechism here doesn't speak of Adam individually. It speaks of man. It speaks of all Adam's posterity all his offspring and it demonst- and we have demonstrated in our own lives that we are in agreement with Adam's rebellion partakers of it we add sin to sin look for every excuse to push away the guilt and the shame. But the holy God responds in his wrath. And that wrath cries out, Repent! My justice must be satisfied. There is no escape except by faith in Jesus Christ in In him whom I have provided, says God, for the satisfaction of all whom I save. Apart from him, there is no salvation. Only everlasting damnation in that place called hell, 
where my wrath is poured out without ceasing. And that brings us to the final consideration of what is necessary for us to understand if we are to enjoy that only comfort in being delivered from our sin and death by him who alone saves. God's justice in punishing sinners is revealed in the execution of his justice. The sinner would like to escape pleading God's mercy. Question and answer 11. Is not God then also merciful? God is indeed merciful, but also just. Therefore, his justice requires that the sin, that sin which is committed against the most high majesty of God be also punished with extreme that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. Yes, indeed, God is merciful. If not for His mercy, we would not be here today. If not for His mercy, the whole human race would have been destroyed as in a moment. We've said before, All God's attributes are one in Him. And those attributes are not defined by His relationship to the creature. He's the merciful God eternally before ever man was created. So that mercy of God is His will to bless His own name himself eternally in everything he is and does. He knows himself as the Holy One, the ever-blessed God. His mercy is his will to maintain his blessedness always. So that when we ask about God's mercy in relationship to his creatures and man in particular, We have to consider what the Bible reveals about God's eternal counsel. In seeking the glory of his own name, he determined to reveal the glory of his blessedness by saving out of the whole human race a people in Christ. Ephesians 1 verses 4 through 6 expresses it this way, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ unto himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Now notice, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the Beloved. God will reveal his mercy by saving a people, yes. But now the sinner would like to use God's mercy as a means of escape. He knows sin's consequences, 
but he would try to escape the consequences by pleading God's mercy. And therefore, we must stand corrected. Never may we play God's attributes over against each other. That's not unlike a young person trying to play father over against mother. He doesn't like the answer mother gave him, so he runs to father to try to get a different answer. But the two are one flesh, not to be divided. And so it is with all God's attributes. They're one and inseparable in him. God is indeed merciful, but also just. His mercy is revealed only through his justice. There is no escaping justice by claiming mercy. Because all God's attributes are one, his justice is inseparable from his holiness, which we have already seen must come to expression against sin and the sinner in holy wrath. Therefore, God's justice requires that sin, which is committed against the most high majesty of God, be also punished with extreme, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. Yes, there will be the execution of God's justice. He will carry out that punishment that the sinner deserves. Because the wages of sin is death. You see now the need for Christ. For God's Christ. There is no escape the punishment of hell. Except by him who alone would stand in our place. And bear the punishment that we deserve. There's no salvation thinking that if I do the best I can, God must be satisfied with me. There is no salvation in the wishful thinking that God will just let my sin go unpunished, that I can get away with it. Sin without consequences. No, no, there's no salvation in a plea for mercy which refuses to acknowledge God's justice when it comes to the way we have offended his holiness, not just once, but more times than we can count. God says, forget all your excuses. They would only add to your condemnation. There's only one way. The way of merciful justice. God gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That Son laid down his life for all those whom the Father had given him. And at the cross, 
Christ satisfied God's justice and revealed that mercy that has reached down to embrace us. In his righteousness alone is our salvation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Amen. Gracious Father, we humble ourselves in thy presence, acknowledging our sinfulness, shamed by our many excuses, and we flee to thee at the cross and plead that thou wilt look upon us in him who alone could save us our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and strengthen our faith in him. For in his name we pray, amen.